and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. This morning we're in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 29. This is the fourth of seven churches that Jesus addresses here in uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And as we've gone through this, uh, one of the things that you'll, you'll recognize is that... Uh, there's, there's seven churches that Jesus directs John to write to, but there were probably about a hundred churches in different cities at that point in time. So Jesus could have chosen any seven churches, but for whatever reason, he wanted to choose these seven. And if you look at them in a structured way, what you'll find is that each church is struggling with similar things. They're in a similar cultural environment, but the way that they respond to that environment is very different. Um, and so uh, the first church that we we looked at was Ephesus. And what Ephesus was known for was being a church of, of truth. They had the right doctrine. They had the right teachings. But they'd left their first love. Uh, they, they were the church known for truth, but not so much for love. In fact, the, the, the way that they handled truth probably reached a point where it was a little bit harsh. Um, and the opposite of that is what we're seeing today in the church with Thyatira. They're a church that's known for compassion and love, but not so much for the truth. Um, and, and so you kind of have two different experiences in the same cultural environment. Uh, one church leaning heavy into truth and the other church leaning heavy into compassion. Um, and what's interesting is Jesus calls both of those out as not quite it. Uh, there's some good parts of each of them, but there's some things that each of them need to repent from. And so as we look at this, as you go through these churches with us, uh, there, there's levels of application. And so the first level of application, we, we would want to understand what is the original writer here? What is Jesus trying to communicate to these churches in their historical context? But then the other side of it is because there's these seven churches, you end up seeing that there's sort of a complete vision of different struggles that the church in general has gone through. And so you can also look at this and you go, okay, well, what can we learn about the church in general? Uh, maybe, maybe there's one of these that you lean or we lean heavy towards um, and, and we need to repent from something. Uh, most churches are sort of a collection of all seven issues, but some lean heavier into one issue more than another. And so you can see that there's, uh, there's a historical importance for the letter. There's a current importance for the letters with what's going on in the churches. And then there's also personal importance. So for me as an individual, um, what is important for me to take away from this? Uh, as we go through this lesson today, this would be one that you could very easily walk away from it th thinking about how other people should live. Um, that's really not the point of the scripture. Uh, the point of the scripture is to go, okay, what, what needs to happen in my life? And if I see someone erroring, in the, in the direction of being compassion has become their God rather than Jesus. They're, they're all about love, but there's no truth. How should I respond to them? Okay. And so I think that's one of the things you can take away from this. Uh, I, I've titled the message, The Difference Between Sheep and Goats. And uh, the question to ask this morning is, what's the difference between a genuinely saved person and a good person? Uh, what's the difference between having salvation 
and being good in the eyes of your fellow humans? I think that's a very relevant question today. Uh, you'll, we'll ask people, you know, where are you with God? And a lot of people will say, well, I'm a good person. You know, I'm kind, I'm compassionate, I, I, I do nice things for people. But you can be compassionate and go to hell. Because it doesn't save you. Compassion and kindness are not enough. There has to be truth as well. And so that's what you want to look at as we walk away from this passage, as we enter into it. Uh, what's the difference between someone who's genuinely saved and a good person in the eyes of their fellow humans? Now, Jesus has some things to say about this. In Matthew chapter 7, he talks about entering the kingdom. And he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who will go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult is the road that leads to life, and few will find it. Be on your guard against false teachers who come to you in sheep's clothing, but, are in, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but every bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. Would you consider the fruit of our society today, the world that you live in, good? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, and this last part's important, you lawbreakers. He, he says that they, they, they believe they're doing the right thing. They're doing compassionate things. They're doing good things. They're, they're empowering people. They're uh, it, either even trying to do it in Jesus' name. But he says, depart from me, you lawbreakers. Jesus also talks about the kingdom and entering into it in Matthew chapter 25. He says, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will, t will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I, I tell you, Whatever you did for the least of one of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will also look to those on the left. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? 
And he will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of one of these, or you did not do for the least of one of these, you did not do it for me. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So you look at these two passages, and in the first one he emphasizes morality. You shouldn't be a lawbreaker. What God reveals to be right and wrong about morality, you should adhere to it. You should be obedient to the commands that God gives on morality within the scriptures. Righteousness, holiness, purity, they matter. And in the second passage, he tells us that people who are genuinely saved, they are compassionate. People who are genuinely in Christ will care for those who are hurt. They will look after those who are sick. And in doing so, they're actually serving Christ. And so we look at passages like this, and what they teach us is that those who are genuinely saved, those who are truly in Christ, they have a changed and changing lifestyle that honors God by helping others. That particularly those who can't help themselves. But it also maintains practices of righteousness over lawlessness. See, an authentic saved person is both just and moral. They both do what is right for those who are hurting and live a pure lifestyle. They're both merciful and upright, both kind and truthful. A genuinely saved person will have both the reputation of serving others and the reputation of purity. Their names are mentioned in connection with both generosity and countercultural principled behavior. They are loved by those who see the need for human kindness and disdained by those who love fleshly indulgence. The pattern of their lives is a blessing to the hurting, lost, and destitute. And at the same time, it's the handwriting on the wall coming of the coming destruction for those who live sensual, godless lives. And they are this way because Jesus is this way. And his life permeates theirs. With confidence and honesty, this kind of person can say, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Like Jesus, they're both a friend of sinners and the voice calling out, go forth and sin no more. Their kindness and purity leads others to repentance and faith in the Son of God who loved them and gave himself up for them. And so this brings us to the fourth church in the book of Revelation, this church in Thyatira. They're smaller in size than the other cities that we've looked at, smaller in church size as well that we've encountered. But they have similar cultural problems. There's false gods. There's worshiping the creation over the creator. This church in Thyatira has allowed that way of thinking and living to corrupt it to the very core. And so while Ephesus was the church known for truth and lacking love, Thyatira is the church known for love lacking truth. The other way around. They're known for truth lacking love. No, I said it backwards twice. <laughs> Ephesus, truth lacking love. Thyatira, love lacking truth. Uh, Ephesus, one might say, represents the modern American conservative church. They have all the right truth, but they're pretty tough on people. Thyatira represents the modern American progressive church. They're very kind, but truth has gone out the window. Both are lacking in the completeness of Christ, and both are called to repent. 
And so when we get to this church in verse 18, Jesus approaches John and he says, Write to the angel in the church of Thyatira. This commission for John to write directly from Jesus. He says, Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. And so what Jesus does in each of these is he gives the command to write and then he tells the church something about himself. And to the church that has been seduced by the world, the flesh, and the devil, Jesus reminds them of his fiery disposition towards unrepentant sin. His eyes are aflame towards unrepentant sin. He, he looks at the areas of our lives where we reject the truth and we, we step up and we say, we'll determine what's right and wrong for ourselves. And, and, and he looks at that with fiery eyes. He looks at that with judgment. The idea that we could stand before our creator and tell him he got it wrong with sexuality. He got it wrong with materialism. He got it wrong. He's not the true God. In fact, maybe a little bit. But if I'm going to tell you what I really think, I think I'm God here because I'm going to, to determine what's right and what's wrong. The portions of the scripture that are culturally inconvenient, we're not going to talk about those. We're going to avoid them. The portions of the scripture that are culturally difficult, we'll pretend like they don't matter. And it says that his eyes are aflame, fiery flame. Now, the other side of this is that his feet are like bronze. And, and when, you, when you look at bronze within the scripture, one of the first places that you see it uh, is actually within the, uh, uh, the story in, in the Exodus. And they're, they're in the wilderness and they're unrepentant with their sin. And God sends in serpents, fiery serpents, they're called. Um, and he uses them to judge the people. And they say, give us a cure for this. And he says, Moses, take some bronze and make a serpent and put it on a pole. And anybody who looks at the pole, they, they, they can trust in that and they'll be saved from the consequences of the bite. And so bronze is, is, well, the first time we see it in this way is it's a representation of God's forgiveness, his willingness to forgive and cleanse. And so in the same passage that he says his eyes are fiery towards unrepentant sin, there's a reminder that you don't have to stay there. There's a reminder that you can be forgiven. And so that's what he wants them to hear. He wants us to hear that if the Spirit of God is telling you that there's an area of your thinking and your belief that doesn't match his and you stop up your ears to it, you grieve, you quench the Holy Spirit, uh, the fire of his voice is clear within your mind and your conscience. In your heart of hearts, you know that what he says is right, but you put it out because it's culturally inconvenient. God's eyes are fiery towards that. He calls us to repent of it, to change the way we think about it. That said, there are some good things still, he says in verse 19. I, I know your works, your love, your faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than your first. And so he, he says, you're doing a good job in this growing and selfless care of others who cannot care for themselves as you maintain belief in good works. Doing the right thing is the right thing. 
right? Helping people who go without is the right thing to do. Compassion and understanding that there are those around us that, that don't have the same means that we do. There are those around us that their family upbringing wasn't the same. They haven't been dealt the same hand that we have. And so if we've been dealt a good hand, we should use the good hand, steward it well to bless those who go without. And it says you're growing in that. That's good. That's really good. You go through the scriptures and you see Jesus. There are multiple places where someone who is being uh, mistreated by the religious elite, um, he sees them and it, and it says that he feels compassion. And the way that that comes across is there's a stirring in his inner being that in his stomach, he sees someone being taken advantage of and he goes, that's wrong. And not only does he say that's wrong, but I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to write this. Genuine Jesus, Christ-like compassion, sees the plight of other people, people that are being taken advantage of, and it says, I'm going to help. I can't stand by idly and let that continue to happen. I'm going to move. People that go without, I'm going to care for them. Students at Jack Valley Elementary that don't have, we're going to make sure that they have. Right? There's different things that we do within our community where we say this is a group of marginalized people who aren't being cared for. Let's care for them. That's God's kind of compassion. It's good. But it doesn't save you. That is not the means of your salvation. It's proof of salvation when matched with Christ's likeness in morality. But it's not proof of salvation if you reject what Jesus says, what the scriptures say about what's right and what's wrong. You cannot be a saved person and reject Jesus' version of morality. It doesn't work. And so he rebukes them for this very thing. In verse 20, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. So if you know your Bible, you can read about her in 1 Kings chapter 16 through 21. But she deceives a king and leads him to do some things that are not so good. She calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Do you know what one of the biggest little G gods of our culture is? His name is Tolerance. And this says, Jesus says, I have this against you. This is what's wrong with you. You tolerate, that means to permit and let loose. You allow her in your life and you do nothing to stop her. This woman Jezebel, and what she does is she teaches and deceives. She tells people that sexual immorality is not something that God cares about. Uh, she tells them that, that life can be found in the worship of meat sacrifice to idols as an allusion to worshiping the creation over the creator. Life can be found in the creation apart from God. That kind of tolerance is evil. That kind of tolerance is sin. To not call immorality, immorality? To say what God determines to be evil? To say it's permissible or good? That's sin. To tell people that sensuality and the things of this world is where they're going to find true happiness and meaning in life? 
It's not the message of Jesus. It's sin. It misses the mark. And in verse 21, he says, I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Do you understand that this is something that's true about God? Part of God's compassion is patience. Part of God's compassion, mercy, is withholding punishment that's due to someone. They've done something wrong, and in, in mercy and compassion, God gives them opportunity after opportunity to repent. We see things like this in the Old Testament, right? Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, the, the people that lived in Sodom and Gomorrah had rejected God to the point that when an angel shows up in their presence, their first response is, can we rape it? That's what the scripture teaches. Uh, they've, they've left God. They've gone that far. But one of the other things you realize is if you dig into the context, God gave them two to three hundred years to repent before he judged them. There was a long period of time before he judged them. It wasn't just, I've had enough. It was opportunity after opportunity to repent. And, and God does this with us. He, he does this with Pharaoh. You get into the story of Pharaoh and, and God shows up and he uses ten plagues and he uses Moses and some different things. And what God is doing with Pharaoh is he's demonstrating to him that he's going away from the one true God. He's rejecting the one true God. And there are places where it says that, that God hardened Pharaoh's hearts, heart. But there's also a place where it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so what's going on in this is that when you're in sin, unrepentant sin, there's a rub between you and God. You ever had to work a shovel all day long? You got soft hands and you work that shovel all day long, the rub happens all day long. What happens? You get blisters, you get calluses. You do that for a long time and work in a machine shop all your life and they, that person lays their hand on you. That's scratchy. It's calloused. And so there are times where God steps into our lives and he demonstrates, us to, uh, he demonstrates to us the sin that we're living in, the unrepentant ways of our life. And in that case, God is rubbing against us. He'll use different things in our lives and, and our sickness, financial loss. He'll use all sorts of things to demonstrate to us that we're, we're out of whack with him. We're in a place of sin. But the other thing that can happen is God can come along and then we can push back. And we rub against him. And what happens is this callus builds, this callus grows. And because of this seduction and idolatry, there's natural consequences that follow. Verse 22, it says, Look, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her will go into great affliction unless they repent of her works. Uh, the, the way that he words that is intended to be ironic. The, the temples that they... What's it doing? What, you weren't picking me up? There you go. No, it was rubbing on your face. Okay. <laughs> it was... It was ru oh, that's ironic. But it's that, that phrase there, sickbed, it, it's intended to be ironic because what happens there is the, the word that he uses, the, the pagan temples of the time, you could go in and worship with a temple prostitute and they had 
beds or couches set up within those temples so that you could commit sexual immorality where they viewed it as worship with one of the temple prostitutes. And so he uses that same language to say this, temp, this, this temple of, that you think is of pleasure is I'm going to turn it into a sick bed. Still doing it, huh? Did you know that if God's version of marriage and sexuality were adhered to perfectly by humanity, there would be no sexual disease? It wouldn't exist. Wouldn't exist. Innocent people who then contract it through behavior of other people, that wouldn't happen either. There'd be no unwanted or uncared for children. God's design is good. And when people move away from it, it causes other people harm. And so God wants us to repent from that. And he says, unless they repent of her works, verse 23 is hard, especially this week. It says, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines the minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. A bad tree produces bad fruit. A society that runs away from God and tells him we don't need him. A society whose unrepentance is at a point of a very calloused heart. It bears bad fruit. And what passages like this and others reveal is that when we see the lives of the innocent being taken within our society... It's two things. It's a demonstration of how far we are from God. And it's also divine retribution. It is judgment. And I don't mean of the individual families. There's probably some wonderful people who are hurting because of what took place. But when the stench of sin is so strong in your society and it reaches the level that we're at today, you're going to get some of that stink on you. And so this judgment is something that we all feel. And so he tells us to repent of it. But he also recognizes that there are some in every society, a remnant, and so in verse 24, he says, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I'm not putting another, any other burden on you. Only hold to what you have until I come. That phrase there, the secrets of Satan, it's a little obscure. Different commentaries have different views on it. It's likely a reference to the Gnostic teaching that claims secret knowledge about who Jesus was and that he had, you guys have read the Dan Brown books and the Da Vinci Code and all that nonsense that Jesus married Mary Magdalene and the Holy Grail is actually his line. That all came from Gnosticism. It, it made Jesus less than God. Had no eyewitness account. Was, it's complete rubbish. But he says, for those of the, the, the apostate church, the, the church that's left the true teachings of Christianity, they're going to be judged. But the faithful, home, uh, the, the faithful remnant, they're inspired to hold to Christ and not give any more ground. You haven't gone for this teaching. 
you've, you've stayed clean from the way that the world thinks. Stay strong. Don't give any more ground. You know better than to fall for the lie that the perversion of sex is not where life is found. You, you know better than to think that the perversion of the creation into believing that it could be the, the one and only place to find the experiential lust in life you're looking for. You, you don't go for that. That teaching has infected your church to the point where they believe that love and kindness and compassion are not necessary to have truth alongside them. That's the apostate church. God says it's going to be judged. But for those of you who are holding on, don't give up. Maintain. Then he says in verse 26, To the one who overcomes and who keeps my words to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. That's a reference to Psalm chapter 2, verse 9. And he will rule with them with an iron scepter, and he will shatter them like pottery. Just as I have received this from my father. I will also give him the morning star, which is a reference to Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, and 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. It's a reference to Jesus as the Messiah. But anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And so, it's an interesting couple of words there. He, he says those who are faithful to Jesus, they're going to be given authority. That means the right to choose. Uh, you've demonstrated that you have chosen well. Now, if you have kids, you know that as they choose well, you give them more freedom. If they choose poorly, you take the car keys away. Right? You don't give freedom to people who choose poorly. You don't give freedom to people who are reckless. You don't give freedom to people who are harmful. But as you have remained in Christ and you have held to what is true and you're not harming other people and you're, you're living well, you're blessing other people, you've maintained kindness and compassion and love and morality, I'm going to give you more right to choose, more authority, more freedom. There are times when I wonder if our society is so far from God and the decision making that we make is so bad that maybe we will have to legislate to the lowest common denominator. I hope not. But I wonder. And then he tells them that he'll give them the right to rule and Jesus' version of ruling it's, it's care for and directing. Uh, Jesus is having an interaction with his disciples. They're walking and the, uh, John and James' mom, the mother of the Zebedees, he, she goes to Jesus and she says, when you come into your kingdom, will you give my sons the seat at the right and the seat at the left? And he says, do you know what you're asking for? And he, oh, absolutely, we know what we're asking for. And, and, and he says, but you don't understand. First of all, God's already prepared, my father has prepared those spots for somebody. Um, but... 
you also have a misnomer about what leadership is. You think leadership is like how the Gentiles think of it. They gather power and they use it to hold people down. They gather power and they use it to corral people. They don't use it to serve people. They don't use it to bless people. And Jesus says, if you want to be great, then you need to learn to be a servant. Uh, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So if you want to be in a position of leadership, learn how to lay down your life for other people. You want to be an awesome husband? Don't be selfish. You want to be a great parent? Don't be selfish. You want to be a good co-worker? You want to be a good boss? You want to be happy in traffic? That's a joke. Don't be selfish. But he says that they'll rule with him with an iron scepter, and he'll shatter them like pottery. There's an element of, we'll see this at the end of the book, that when Jesus returns and he deals with sin and death and evil once and for all, that those who have been faithful, they're, they're elevated into positions of authority because they've used what God has given them well. I think we're going to be surprised to see who God elevates in his kingdom. Uh, they've used what God has given them well, and then they've blessed other people with it. And so we're going to rule and reign with him is the promise that's given here. Then when Jesus returns, we will have some part to play in the judgment of those who have done evil with their lives. And he says, also give him the morning star. And again, this is a reference to Jesus as the Messiah. What it's, what it's telling us is that when we, when we look to what is truly worth having, what is truly worth holding on to, it's not our own power. It's not our own authority. It's not our ability to choose for ourselves what's right or wrong. It's not our pleasure as we would define it. But it's Jesus. He is what's truly going to fulfill you. He is the bread of life you've been looking for that will end your hunger. He is the water of life that will end your thirst. He's what you're looking for. And so he says, anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And so as we walk away from this passage, we the church must be known for being in Christ. That's what matters. And if we're in Christ, we'll remain in him, then our reputation will both be of extravagant compassion and uncompromising moral goodness. We'll be both. We will be known for seeing those who are hurting and saying God has blessed us material with material wealth. We're going to use the material blessing that God has given us to take care of the less fortunate. We will be known for compassion but will also be known for uncompromising moral goodness. When our society tells us that kindness is enough, compassion gets it done, we say, no, don't be absurd. There's a moral God of this universe and he has laid out what is right and what is good. And to do the opposite of what is right and what is good will result in wrong and evil. Sexual promiscuity is not just a matter of you feeling and doing what feels good in the moment. Every time that you walk down that path, you burn someone. And to be unrepentant from it causes God to look at you with fiery eyes. Kindness isn't enough. 
Morality matters. And so we will embody not just the teachings of Jesus that are culturally comfortable, but also the one that challenges our culture's concept of right and wrong. See, Christians, we'll be kind people. We'll be kind to people. But not seduced into a lost way of living that embraces sensuality and immorality. We'll comfort people with grace and mercy that warms even the most feeling of hearts. And yet we'll create discomfort in that very same heart as we live out the way of Jesus with levels of purity and countercultural thinking, speech, and behaviors that reveal the disparity between Christ-like morality and worldliness. Your bleeding heart liberal friend who sees what's going on and they hurt. That's good. That kind of compassion is good. If you can look at what's going on in the world and feel nothing, that's not good. And so the Christian should be able to warm that heart that hurts. And at the same time, you're going to create discomfort in that heart as you demonstrate levels of purity that say no to the sensuality and immorality of our culture. The Christian does both. Anything less falls short of the glory of God and marks out sin in our lives that Jesus is faithful to correct and bring future victory. I recognize that these messages in Revelation are somber and challenging. But if you want to worship the true God, you have to have a complete picture of him. He is both compassionate and perfectly holy. He is both always loving and merciful and gracious towards us and has fiery, judgmental eyes towards unrepentant sin. He's both. And if we're called to be conformed to the image of Christ, then he will have us in the tension between those things, mirroring who he is. Not who we want to be, not what's culturally comfortable for us, not one political party or the other. We will be all of God's love and grace and mercy, but also the voice calling out, sin no more. Because the sin is what's causing our families to fall apart. It's what's causing our children to be aborted. It's what's causing relationships to fall apart. It's, it, it, it is what breaks our society. And as our society continues down that path, God does not grant more freedom. He grants less. But more than any of that, he promises to those who trust him that he'll give us the morning star. He'll give us himself. And so the real question is, do you want relationship with the one true God? Do you really want it? Or is pretense enough for you? Let me pray. 
Father, this morning we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are all of grace and love and mercy, but you are also a God of infinite moral purity and holiness far beyond us. Left to ourselves, we would be in a lot of hot water. Left to ourselves, when this passage says we will enter into eternal punishment with the, with the devil and his angels. Yet, you have given us a means of salvation. You have come and saved us. You have come and paid the consequences for our sin. And so we thank you for that. We pray that you would reveal areas of sin in our, in our lives to us today. Uh, the Spirit of God who is present and active here with us, that he would demonstrate to each, and one, of, each one of us in our conscience and in our hearts the areas where we will not align with you. That our hearts would soften rather than push back. And then we would come into alignment with your your goodness in your life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.